So if you could turn with me to Proverbs 8, um, open your Bible right in the middle. You'll find Psalms, flip over, it's Proverbs. But uh, hopefully you're using your scripture journals, and that would be wonderful. But we're going to be in the book of Proverbs. This morning we continue our series called Fight for Joy. It's a, it's a topical series, which if you remember, this is not... This, this is not common for us to, to do a topical series in this way. I mean, in all of Crosspoint's history and Crosspoint's coast history, we're like Bible book preachers. We start and then we go all the way. And so we are actually in Mark uh, in August. And so we're going to pick back up in Mark in August. And so we started that in February, taking a break for the summer to do this topical series. And it, it asks the question, how do we walk in Christ's victory over the patterns of sin in our lives? Of the three greatest enemies that we face in this world, the world, Satan, and our flesh, the deadliest of these is our own flesh, is our own sinful nature. And the series intention is to help us identify areas and patterns of sin in our lives. But in order to deal with sin, we need to discover its root. We need to know that at the, what is at the heart of our sins, because it's there that we find what falsehoods we are believing, what lies we have given our hearts to. For example, Most of us here have dogs as pets. I've been to your house, I know. And so whether you have a poodle or a cane corso or a pit bull, those are just types of dog, right? Examining the root helps us identify the fruit. You can't know a mastiff until you fully know what it is at its root, a canine. Could you imagine the consequences of labeling and treating a mastiff as a feline. It's weird. It doesn't make sense, and it'll never be satisfied. But in this series, we will highlight and examine seven root sins, sloth, envy, pride, gluttony, lust, greed, and wrath. And last week, you guys uh, heard from Jeremiah, who's the lead pastor at Crosspoint Pineda, about envy. And then the week before that, we were with uh, studying together sloth. And so you can already see two weeks in, you can already see the intersection that these sins play into each other, right? In some cases, they all sort of look the same. And in some cases, they don't look the same, but there's multiple of them kind of at play. It's really complex. That's probably the, the, the sub-theme of the theme of sin is that it's more complex than you think it is. But this, that's the truth that keeps us from falling into a temptation that the church throughout history has fallen into. That truth right there that all of these sins sort of play into each other, that they sort of kind of hang out equally. That reality guards us against believing that there is some sort of scale for which some sins weigh heavier or are more serious to God than others. Let's be clear, every sin weighs the same in consequence and every sin paid for with freedom in Jesus. 
There is no sin that grants greater punishment than another and no sin so powerful for which Christ was not able to atone for. Let us not believe that the sloth is more punishable than the lion. No, they both fall in comparison to Christ. With that in our hearts and minds, let us not also believe that our sin is the product of our failure to behave alone. Sin is not just an issue of the hands. It is not just an issue of morality. When it comes to sin, the whole person must be addressed. It's not just wrongdoing. It's wrong thinking and wrong feeling that results in our sinfulness. And this family is why we turn to the Proverbs. Because every day we wake up, we do not enter the battle. We don't enter the fight for right living. Every moment you and I wake up, we enter the crucible of what masters our affections, which masters our thoughts, which then guides our actions. This morning, let us remember the guidance found in Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This morning, let us trust in the Lord. This morning, let us trust that he will make straight our paths. Let us trust that he will sanctify us and transform us and let's trust that God is in the business of his children's flourishing let us keep all of this in our minds as we examine the folly of pride pride like many of these root sins is characterized in ways that typically uh, don't speak to its full potential Pride, like the other root sins, is more complex than the idea of it we have in our minds. Pride puts oneself above God, contending for his supremacy. If there was a mountain of sin, pride would be at the top, not because it carries more weight or significance, but rather because of its influence over the person. It is a cosmic crime. Because in all sin contains pride's essence, its fragrance, it lingers behind. Speaking of dogs, when my dog spends too much time outside and she comes inside, she stinks. I can't stand it, but she can't help it. And so she kind of goes to her bed, which is sometimes in my room, and she'll cut through the kitchen to get there. But five, ten, five, ten, uh, ten seconds Right, 10 total seconds of after she left the kitchen, you still smell her. Right? Pride is the same way. It permeates every space, every category of sin. The sloth seeks its comfort. The envious seeks to rob its neighbor for its own gain. Pride exists in all of them, attempting to elevate the person over God. I'm not sure that we could ever in this life understand God's repulsion for the proud. Throughout scripture, God has strong language for those who are prideful. And even then, pride can be hard to spot. 
As I said, it's more complex than we think it to be. This morning, it is my hope to explain the two sides of pride. But before I do that, let's read God's word. And then would you pray for me as I pray for you as together we hear from God this morning. Proverbs 8, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, may our joy be complete in you this morning. May the things that entice us, trick us into beholding anything but you subside as we hear your wonderful plan for our life. God, would you gift me the preacher with clarity of speech and thought, and would you gift the congregation with attentiveness and grace for my errors? In Christ's name, amen. Because I'm Puerto Rican, that means I inherently love three things, or rather three categories of things, music, fried food, and sports. That's it. It comes with being born in in this way. Sports, though, is a really foundational one to us. Like We get really, 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 really hard about it, And, and, and we gravitate to people who come from the island, right? So whether it's Miguel Cotto or Tito Trinidad or or just any of like these symbols of uh, uh, pride for Puerto Rico, we get really excited about them, right? But if you were to Google the pride of Puerto Rico, you wouldn't get any of the guys I named before. Who you would get is a man named Roberto Clemente. I mean, he played 18 years in the major leagues and he is really a symbol of pride for Puerto Rican people, like really, really, they, they teach about him in schools. It's that much, like they, we love this guy. But I would encourage you to read about him. He was a great humanitarian, did a lot of great efforts, did a lot of great things. His story is inspiring and it's beautiful. I just wanna make clear though that that's not the kind of pride we're talking about this morning. Cultural pride is not a sin. Now, it can lead to sin. Don't hear me not say that. But we have to be careful about this. God made the Irish and God made the Caribbean. God made them to be who they were. And there are no cultures inherently better than others. And there are no individuals or peoples better than others. This is a a different type of pride altogether and wickedness that honestly today I don't have the time to get into. But it wouldn't serve the purpose of this series. But I just want to make sure that pride we get to see that pride has a very complex Face. Fighting pride is like fighting a shapeshifter. There's multiple forms of pride. In fact, we could spend an entire series on that. So I'm not talking about cultural pride. But I'm also not talking about this kind of pride, one that we don't do, that we don't sort of address enough, this sort of category. And it's that God made you. And he made you, you. From the color of your skin to the sound of your laugh, he made you and saw that it was good. And God made no mistakes, spared no effort in making you in his own image and likeness. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. All the days of your life are written in God's book before you were born. You are worth more than pearls, Scripture says. 
God loves you, family. And your self-worth and dignity is incredibly important for you spiritually, emotionally, and mentally. But to help us understand what kind of pride we're talking about this morning, cultural pride or self-worth, we're not entering the realm of those categories, at least not outright. Our text this morning instructs us. It says, the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. If I could recall you to remember what we said in week one, the fight for joy is a fight for our affections. Our affections, our swayed, moved, positioned in light of what we fear, right? The illustration I borrowed was someone who reads a book and sees a cockroach sitting next to them on the sofa. They don't go back to reading the book, right? Everything that follows after they've acknowledged a cockroach next to them is birthed out of the fear that there is a cockroach sitting next to me. They don't go back to reading the book, right? Our fear we live in light of. All of that fear and anxiety suddenly determines the course of actions that will come from the person. Our proverb here teaches this again. Fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. To fear the Lord, to behold his holiness, to have him as the center of all of your life, to see his worthiness, to see his majesty, to to, to see him in contrast of your own life results. In a hatred of evil. And be careful here. Be careful not to have a hatred of evil without a proper fear of the Lord. How deceitful we can be about these things. This puts the fight for our joy contingent upon the fight for the morality of others around us. Not only that, but it puts our idea of evil at the result of our fear which has to mean that we have replaced God with ourselves and welcomed the abomination of pride in our hearts. Family, the world outside is preaching to us. It is preaching to us morality in exchange for godliness at the center of our hearts. It is teaching us a covert pride and arrogance that sounds godly but isn't. Something else can be totally true, though. You can think you have a fear of God. But that God, what he looks like, is really just a God who agrees with you and every persuasion you have given your thoughts and affections to. It could be to you that God is a Western God and not a global God, that God is a God of America and not others. It could be that the policies of God line up in you uh, to a singular political party that exists in a singular country that exists for a singular benefit of a specific people. That is not the God of the Bible. That is the God of you. You have conformed God to your own interests Instead of conforming your interests to God. And now that God you fear is actually imaginary, false, made up of your own fears. This is pride as well. You have manipulated yourself into believing that it's God at the center when reality it's you. Tim Keller says, if your God never disagrees with you, you might be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. 
It is God and God alone that we should center our lives around. To fear God is to hate evil. To fear the Lord rightly is to align yourself with what the Lord loves. Describing what the Lord hates is a call for the believer to examine their own hearts for such things, to live in such a way that guards against those things, and to walk in such a way that is connected to with what the Lord loves. It's the examination portion that I hope to uncover this morning as we look at the two sides of pride. The first side of pride is the one that builds oneself up. It is the self-exaltation side of pride. This happens when God's good things are manipulated for our version of those things. This is much more egregious when we say that in vain of my last point, that our version of things is God's version. You see that? God has given us many great things in this life that are all extensions of his nature. Grace, mercy, love, justice. But these things become people's playthings and build up their own version of these things that is not in accordance with God's version. For example, let us look to justice. Justice is something we know God not only practices, Jeremiah 9, but is delighted when we participate in seeking it because it produces joy in us, Proverbs 12. We are commanded to chase it, to follow it, Deuteronomy 16. And in Hebrew, there are three variations of justice used in scripture. There's sedek, a natural, moral, right, equity, prosperity, even uh, uh, the, the secondary definition is that which is altogether just. Radaf, which is to run after, chase, put to flight, follow, hunt, pursue. And Mishpat, which is a restorative justice, seeking out the vulnerable, the taken advantage of, and seeking them out and restoring us. There is clear instruction and definition to what God views as justice. You can do this with anything, right? And yet you and I, we see injustices in the world every day. We see them in our own backyard. If we look and see that justice is a nature of God and that he calls us to seek for it and calls us to pursue it for our joy, then a fear of the Lord doesn't produce a hate or dispassion even towards justice. It pursues a radical chasing of it. But pride seeks to obscure what justice is to the believer. Pride replaces God's justice for a version of justice that is more palatable to your affections because it protects you at the center of your life and not God. This is a principle. Our version of God's things usually leave no room for our comforts, our agendas, and our experiences to be challenged. Our version of God's things detract from the centering of God in our lives and his practice of those things as a result and makes the focal point to be the relative morality of individuals. Isn't this conceptually reminiscent of the garden? Huh? God has determined what is good and right for his people. 
given them his things to operate in and steward. Clearly defines roles and responsibilities and boundaries, but the whisper of the serpent tells us you'll be like God. You'll be able to determine what is good and right for you. Did God really say this? Did he really mean that? As the New Testament scholar Esau Macaulay says, there are uses of scripture that utter a false testimony about God. This is what we see in Satan's use of scripture in the wilderness. It isn't that the scripture Satan used was untrue, but when made to do the work that he wanted them to do, distorted the biblical witness. In other words, pride is when we make God's things our things for our own self-exaltation. When God gives us these things for our joy and his glory, pride seeks to rob God of his glory in exchange for our own, which then robs us of our joy because it is no longer found in the one who makes our joy complete. I'll be excited about Jesus all by myself this morning. That's okay. But then how do we fight? How do we war against pride? By putting on humility, right? You would say the natural photo negative of pride is humility. If pride is the exaltation of self above God, humility is removing self as the center and beholding God as the center. I want to come back to that in a moment. But first, let me explain what humility is not. Humility is not self-degradation. Self-degradation can actually be a form of pride. This is the second side of pride. Rather than celebrating the successes of others, this side of pride throws a lavish pity party. This form of pride shows itself in self-demolition. A planned faux humility to be seen as meek and humble. It parties in public the lack of performance it showed in comparison to others. It exists to highlight that you have less than others or you have it harder than others. This is a dangerous form of pride because it seeks applause for being what it is not. It is looking for attention to detract detention from those who deserve it. It is gentle and low only for the appearance of gentleness and lowliness. This form of pride lives in Christian circles where morality is the focus, where responding correctly is celebrated as much as praising God for the work he is doing. This form of pride is the perverted speech God hates. It's a manipulation of praise you think you deserve. In my time in ministry, the most intimate environment I have seen this take place in is in marriages. When one spouse does wrong, they will become low and gentle and broken for what they did. But although those responses in name should be the fruit of repentance and reconciliation, in this way, in this prideful way, they are doing it to take the attention off of their wrongdoing to be praised for their right response. It is an attempt, a ploy, to hijack a moment that needs to be had in exchange for a moment that should be had for someone else. But it can also be 
an overrealized judgment of self-condemnation. We can mentally replay poor performances in order to beat ourselves up over our failures. Self-condemnation assumes that you and you alone can condemn yourself for your own performances. This is prideful folly as well. If you were to turn with me to John 8, Jesus teaches us this profound, the profound reality of this folly. John 8, starting in verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing, and placing her in the midst... They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. That's interesting. That's, I don't know what he did there. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Did you catch it? Did you catch it? When the Pharisees brought a woman who, by the law's requirement, deserved to be stoned for her sin, Jesus tells him, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Family, all sin is punishable by death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And And so everyone... For everyone, there was, that, that is a guilty, and, and, and they are condemned to be a stoning. That's, that's what they wanted for this woman. The Pharisee said, with well, this sin deserves death. That is not reminiscent of the sin you and I participate in. Our sin demands death. And so the Pharisees are seeking this judgment, seeking this condemnation. Jesus says, Who's qualified to do it? If you've sinned, you cannot throw this stone. Nobody in that moment had lived in such a way that they were worthy of throwing the first stone. Please tell me you see it, family. Jesus was worthy. Jesus was worthy. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. There was one person there who was sinless, who was able, worthy to throw the first stone, and he did not. What does he say to her? Who condemns you? Oh, her answer should preach to you. No one. No one. And the one who was worthy says, neither do I. 
Neither do I. Self-condemnation is pride because it assumes that you and you alone are worthy of casting the first stone on yourself. But there is only one man. There is only one who is worthy enough to cast the first stone and he does it on you. What is the second half of Romans 6, 23? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Instead, what God in Christ offers you is freedom from your pride, freedom from the wages of your sin, freedom from the performance of relative morality, and he gives you life. And you cannot condemn yourself because when you were truly worthy of being condemned, worthy for being cast to the side, worthy of being forgotten, God spared you in Christ, and he took the stone that was meant for you, and he took the punishment that you deserve and he took the nails and he took the crown and he took the death and he took on your pride though he was without pride himself and he wore it to kill it on the cross and you and we still live in this pride how do you fight against pride you live in light of the one who humility is personified You live in light of the one who humility is personified. A king came down to die for his servants. A king who became a king became sin, who knew no sin, so that his children could be heirs to the throne family. God hates pride, but he loves the humble. Every single one of us is struggling with pride. I'll just blanket that for sure. Every single one of us is struggling with pride. There is no saint who this folly does not entice all of us. Maybe I didn't speak to your specific versions of pride this morning, but let it be true that you have a proudness in you that this sermon was unable to convince you to see. But I see I'm asking you to see it now. All of us wrestle, grapple, contend with pride and without being able to tailor this sort of response to your unique expression I still have an answer for you I want you to point to the nature of your salvation how God has rescued you was for your humility you were not the decisive cause of your salvation you did not choose God The greatest thing, the greatest attribute, and the greatest quality, and I want you to remember these words in light of what I said in the beginning. The greatest attribute about you, the greatest quality that you possess, the greatest gift that you have ever received, you made no contribution towards. Can you feel that? Can you feel the weight of that? You needed to be saved from your sin. You were unable to do that. You did not possess any any quality of salvific effort to save you from the very thing that binds you to hell. It was God in his sovereign power and choice, his love that saved you. 
from that which you could not save yourself from. God in his power and in his might, in his love, completed his great rescue plan for you. And the gift of your salvation gave you faith in his power. Faith is humility in that the essence of it looks to God for help. Faith is not a personal perseverance in your own ability to defeat sin. It is a gift from God to attach your affections to him in trusting in all his ways. Faith looks to God when you are tempted to look towards yourself. Romans 3.27, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, by the law of faith. Your salvation gives you no need or room for self-preoccupation. It gives you no need or room for sinful pride. Being a Christian, having faith is life like a child. A few weeks ago, we went to Orlando to see some friends. And we went to the pool. It was a big pool, gigantic, bunch of people there. And Kian, my youngest, he's a chicken. And... um, I'll say it to his face. And, uh, <laughs> and um, so he, he kind of stays by the stairs. He doesn't really want to go out where he can't feel the bottom. Gives him anxiety. But there was a waterfall. It was really beautiful, and I wanted to take him to it, so I kind of tricked him into coming out into the deep end. And he latched onto me. And he latched onto me, and I could feel his fear. I could feel his fear. And so to comfort him, I told him, I won't let you go. I got you. That's a picture of faith. That's a picture of faith. Faith is clinging to God tightly and joyfully because you're confident that your daddy's got you. Faith is knowing that there is nothing you contribute except your own death. If I let Kian go, he drowns. He contributes nothing to this joyful experience except his own death without my salvation of holding him. He cannot have joy in this pool. That is the same for us. God grabs you, pulls you out to true joy and says, I got you and I'll never let go. And faith takes that check to the bank. Would you stand with me and worship?